The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Kia ora and welcome to Paper Cuts, the podcast all about books. You can follow us on Twitter and Insta at PaperCutsPod and email us at PaperCutsPod at gmail.com. I am one of your guests, Karen Das, and I am joined by... Louisa Cossa and Gina Todd. And today we're joined by... Anne O'Brien. <laughs> who is a very special guest, um, the director of the Auckland Writers' Festival. So uh, thank you, Anne, for coming in today to talk to us, um, taking time out of your very busy schedule, because you would be in the thick of it, right? It is kind of crazy. I mean, there was this huge kind of run-up to launch, so you feel completely bowed down at that point. And, and weirdly, there's a slight ease now. We're just into sort of major paperwork. But I always think at this point we've moved into actually dealing with things as they happen rather than trying to anticipate crises. So it feels <laughs> slightly more like we're, we're heading to the finish line. You're yeah. in real time. We're in real time, indeed. <laughs> so the Auckland Writers' Festival, or Waituhi or Tamaki, has been running for two decades, and it's New Zealand's largest annual festival of ideas and literature. And it's basically a six-day celebration of ideas, writing and books and it hosts, what, over 40 international guests and 180 New Zealand guests? Yeah, pretty much. It's about (laughs) 239 participants this year, I think. Yeah, Yeah. so it's a very wide-reaching programme and you can expect conversations, performances, lectures, panels, workshops, readings and launches. There's something for almost everyone and... um, got a lot of guests this year, so who are, who are you excited about? That is such a mean question to ask a festival <laughs> yeah. Actually, They no, are all no, my children. Yeah, they are all your darlings. Sorry, we can't put you no. on the spot like that. Um, but I do have, I, there are always <laughs> sessions in the programme that have my kind of yeah. heart attached to them. I mean, obviously the internationalist is fantastic because you don't get the opportunity to um, be with those writers all the time. But there are, there are some special sessions. I mean, I'm particularly excited about my three 100-plus-year-olds out of a new book that's come out called Keepers of History. Yeah. And I just thought what a remarkable thing to bring people, three people together who can speak about the span of a life over 100 years and how things have changed potentially how they've stayed the same, actually, and just really celebrate a life well lived. So that's a kind of special. That's a, I wanted to do it on Sunday afternoon, mm. but actually they said, no, actually afternoons they like to have a nap. So <laughs> <laughs> 10 o'clock in the morning it is, and we need to put them on the main stage because I can't walk them through those foyers with sort of thousands of people yes. trying to get them to another room. So that's one. I mean, another is obviously the five remarkable New Zealanders, you know, Albert Wendt, Witte Myra, Tessa Duda, Fiona Kidman, Vincent O'Sullivan, all together talking about the places where they write and the routines of their writing day. You know those mm. questions that audience members ask? Mm. What's your writing process? Exactly. <laughs> so we thought, okay, here's this book, Deborah Shepard's book, The yeah. Writer's Life. Here's this book that actually celebrates that. So we'll get five of them. We'll put the photo of the place where they write on the stage and they'll each give a small talk about what they do in their writing day. So there are some lovely things. But, you know, there's theatre, there's music. We're doing sort of Māori myths retold in the tent. And my, another favourite is we do a, a sort of wild in the street, sort of lit, lit, quakey, lit, crawl event on Fridays. And this year we've gone into the Lawn Street Zone. And amongst other things, we've, we've commissioned Leo McIlvaney, a long-form crime fiction writer, mm. to write a 500-word short, short crime story. And we're going to write an ultraviolet pen on pieces of paper, and you will take your ultraviolet torch down to the stack room in the library oh, and the, read your library. story through the basement. So I just think that's super cool. That's very cool. So, I mean, it's a diverse program, and I just wondered um, what unifies the guests this year. Is there a theme at all? 
There isn't really, I mean, you know, themes emerge out of the people that you get and the kind of work that's happening. And there obviously is sort of light and energy around lots of work at the moment. There's definitely, as the as the program came together, there was definitely a sort of move towards a lot of conversations about identity, about race and about culture, which in the light of the horrific massacre in Christchurch has become even more kind of poignant, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is definitely a theme. But I think the theme that unifies a festival, because it is so broad ranging and we want it to be that, both broad and deep is just a whole lot of great writing great stories and great ways of sort of accessing a new sort of understanding of the world so yeah that's so fair amazing Mm. I was wondering how you because I noticed with the free events they often have a theme a mini theme of their own um you the know, reading events, you mean? The, the reading yeah. events, yeah. <laughs> That's a little bit of a trick. So, I mean, obviously, the free events are a really important strand of the program. Mm-hmm. It's about a third of the program, and we're really committed to keeping that so that we get a broad engagement yeah, and we give fantastic. people an access mm-hmm. point. I'm also really committed to making sure that they don't ghettoise, so that you don't put things in that you don't believe you could get money for, so that actually it's as valuable as any other proposition in the program. Um, but one of the drivers, particularly for those readings events, so these are there are about nine of them. I think, and we put mm. four writers together and we find a theme that sort of links in some lateral way their, their work. Uh, and I like to go across genre, so I don't want to put four fiction writers in, so poetry, non-fiction, mix it all up. One of the drivers for that was to lift the profile of New Zealand writers. So one of the core co-puppers of the Auckland Writers Festival is to support the work of New Zealand writers and to engage readers with it. And we know in any sort of arts forum that actually local is often hard, slightly harder to sell than international because it doesn't have the same sex appeal. Mm. Um, so in those events, we tried to put an international in alongside New Zealanders, which would lift the audience. And we've seen that over the last three or four years. We've seen you know the average audience for New Zealand to go up to sort of somewhere in the 200 in a room, which is pretty high in mm. Writers' Festival standards. So what tends to happen is we've got a whole bunch of work that we're interested in. Uh, we've got some internationals who have a set number of commitments and they haven't quite... We've Still got room, and then I look for the threads where I can pull people together with a, with a little thing and try to go as broad as possible. Yeah, yeah, we absolutely love those events, mm. and they are very popular. When you try and get into them, you sort of have to be there quite early. You have to be there forty five minutes prior. Yeah. <laughs> we do, we do give people that advice. We did yeah. have an email from someone last year who tried to get into the event that had Canal Scud in it yeah. alongside three New Zealanders. Well, we yeah. Sent us an email to complain that they'd taken time off work and arrived ten minutes early and they couldn't get in the door. And why didn't we do something to fix this? It's got Canal Scud in it. It's yeah, a free exactly. event. I think you need to be a little bit more. Yeah, popularity is not something <laughs> that needs to be remedied, really. Is no. It? no. Well, it's a hard balance, isn't it? Because as yeah. we've kind of seen this growth in audience on the one hand it's wonderful and it's brought so much energy into those halls and that just kind of grows and grows on the other hand there are people who remember the days when it felt a little bit more gentle in the lobbies and it didn't take a more gracious age yes and it didn't take quite so long to get coffee it's not always the older people but and so they're sort of resisting that change in a way because it felt like this sort of um, balm away from the busyness of the world and now it's actually just become the busyness of the world but in a really Mm. kind of intoxicating way well, speaking of, you know, obviously coming early to a, you know, one of those reading sessions is a good is good advice. Do you have any other tips mm. for people who are attending the festival? Um, I think that you should always try, and I know directors will say this and people will think I'm just trying to sell tickets, but it is actually true. You should always try and go and see things that are not on your radar mm. that you haven't heard of before because actually seeing someone that you love is a wonderful tick-off point. And there are plenty of people you can do that with in the festival. Artemis Cooper, Anthony Beaver, you know, Camilla Shamsi, people that 
a lot of our listeners will will know. But actually, the things that resonate and people remember years afterwards are the people they discovered, because mm-hmm. that sense of discovery takes you somewhere and it introduces you to a new world. So, I think you know. In fact, if you look at satisfaction levels, which are really high, that they, they really are resoundingly high when people have gone to see someone they didn't know anything about before they got there. So, take the opportunity to engage with different formats different kinds of work than you normally read and people you maybe haven't heard of. And, you know, it may not always work for you, but, I, I, you know, I reckon most of the time you'll find that, that you will take something away from that that's really invaluable. I've definitely found that to be true. Yeah, totally. Me too. Yeah, I think um, Yeah, I think it's a really good idea to read all the way through the program and yeah. not just go immediately to the... Yeah, to the big hits. And we saw that a little bit last year. I mean, last year was a slightly more like this year's program. I mean, there's a core of uh, programming that may not be immediately recognisable to a lot of people. And what we saw is when ticket sales started, they were slightly slow against the year before. Mm. But by the time we got to the end, in fact, someone told me a story about someone that running into someone who said, oh, I'm not going to do anything. I don't know any of those names. And then that was at the, when we launched. And then four weeks later, they're like, oh, can you help me choose? I just don't know what I want to do. So <laughs> That, that program is rich in content and it's worth taking the time to just explore things that kind of trigger an interest for you and mm-hmm. just throw yourself at it. Do you know, you can see my uh, program here. It's well um, posted, noted, we'll yeah. take a photo of it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I thought I had it all locked down and then I was looking through it again yesterday and at the very end there's this intriguing little session about an author who was inspired by Clarice Lispector who is an author that I absolutely adore and I just love that you know it revealed something to me that yeah and I mean Carla that's Carla Guelfenbein so Chilean writer best-selling Chilean writer Mm. I mean she counts amongst her fans Siri Hustved and Jane Kutsia so you know she's she's right up there but not a name that we would know here and and actually one of the sort of drivers for uh, inviting Carla was that she was referencing Clarice Lispector because that's a real opportunity and also it sort of doubles up that Latin American kind of storytelling Mm. which is a great thing to be able to do. How long after this festival finishes do you start thinking? Are you already thinking about 2020? I can tell you I've got at least five or six people provisionally confirmed (laughs) 2020. In fact I spent a bit of time this morning because I'm aware that there are other festival directors out there mm. already firing, um, you know, someone I was talking to, an agent in the States about today, suddenly said, oh, they've had an invitation from somewhere else. I thought, mm. oh my goodness, I need to loop back. So, yeah, I mean, technically it's a 12-month cycle. And what I sort of say jokingly is we spend from June to December sort of um, corralling our troops and raising the money. Mm-hmm. So this is a $2 million turnover operation and we raise $1.3 million every year. So we get one third from box office and we have to raise the rest. Um, and then we spend from January to June spending it. That's my, <laughs> that's my kind of joke. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that some things, you know, some things take years. Murakami took, you know, 14 years of my life sending emails to people. <laughs> Carolyn Duffy took ages and now loves us. In fact, sent me a beautiful message about Christchurch um, last week. Oh, so uh, some things sort of roll over. But yeah, once that program's launched, technically in my artistic role, I'm now thinking about 2020. So this is about production. That's delivery. We are now sort of looking, yeah. looking ahead. Yeah. Incredible. I just can't wait. And we'll be talking about it um, coming up on the next couple of pods. And we'll yes. be down at the festival on the ground. On the ground, roving reporters. Roving reporters. Yeah. Just like last year. I'm sure you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we actually don't know how people felt about that, but we're going to do it again anyway. <laughs> we, got yeah. lots, we got lots of listens, so that's Brilliant. really good. Well, it'll be nice to have you there. Look forward to seeing Thank you. you Anne. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming. You're welcome. Yeah, you're a gem Thanks, for coming Anne. in. Cheers.
So today on Paper Cuts, we have the usual format of book news, Unity Book of the Month, book reviews, who the fuck is, and not books. Woo. So we'll start with our book news. The AWF has been launched, the programme, uh, and that is the Auckland Writers Festival, and it is the 14th to the 19th of May, and we have Anne O'Brien, the director of the festival, in to talk to us, which is very exciting. And also, there is some news around the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. The shortlist. awards, the shortlist has been announced, and the ceremony is Tuesday, May the 14th, 7pm at the ASB Theatre in Altea Square. Yeah, and so that's a public event. You can get tickets. I think they're only like $15. So Everyone should go. Yeah, yeah, come along. It's quite a fun, it's a fun event, right? Yeah, it is yeah. great. You get to hear the um, authors all read a little bit from their books. There's some cool music. Yeah, there's it's, always some good music. <laughs> yeah, and it, um, it moves fairly quickly. Like, there's mm. a good pace to the awards. It's not boring. Yeah, yeah. it's never boring. Yeah, and, it's um, just a nice celebration. And um, I don't know who's emceeing this year, but... Um, Stacey, you know, Stacey Morrison, Morrison is going to emcee again. Yeah, so that'll be a so good time. She will be wonderful because yeah. she was so good last year. Yeah, yeah I'll say. Uh, so... I wonder who'll get the Acorn New Zealand Foundation Fiction Prize. That's the prize for a cool $50,000. And then there's the Mary and Peter Biggs Award for Poetry, Illustrated Nonfiction Award, and the Royal Society Award for General Nonfiction. And we can pop a link up on our page to all the shortlisted titles. Do you guys want to have a little quick chat about the shortlist of fiction? What do you think? Did you think anything was... Did we do that last time? I can't. No, we I did the long list. Oh, we did the long yeah, list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like we were, again, proved correct. Yes, as always. <laughs> about who would be <laughs> on the shortlist. We've got, we've got Fiona Kidman, we've got Vincent O'Sullivan. Thank Kate you. Kate Doigman's New Ships, which I adored. Yeah. And Lloyd Jones. The Cage. Yeah, that's the only one that I haven't read of the yeah, before. I haven't well, read that one either. I have a confession to make, you guys. I haven't read any of the books on the shortlist. Oh, haven't you? I know it's really? crazy. That yeah, I've got to get me. reading. Yeah, well, I yeah, you know, I I don't. You're read. reading other stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can get some of those to you. I have yeah. some on my bookshelf oh, yeah. at home. No, me too. Yeah. So yeah. we can talk about them more just before the yeah before the um, ceremony. Yeah, I definitely need to bone up on all of those before the prize is announced. Yeah. 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 Uh, so the Unity Book of the Month is Say Nothing, The True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Redden Keefe, and it's a $50 hardback. Another Northern Ireland Another book. Another Northern Ireland book. <laughs> yeah. So we should move on to our book reviews. Yes, and I don't think any of our books this month are about Northern Ireland, so. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing pretty good. Yeah. Um, um, so who should start up? Should I go first? Yeah, yeah please. Okay. Mix it up. So I have got this book called Certain American States by Catherine Lacey. You can see, well, you two can see that it's a fantastic cover. Um, another woman in a pool. Another woman in a pool. I'm so drawn to them, mm-hmm. aren't I? It's my genre. <laughs> so this is her fourth book, um, and it's her first collection of short stories. And I've been closely following her writing since 2014 when I read her debut novel, Nobody Is Ever Missing. Oh, Have you I read, read that? that? Yeah. yeah. Really enjoyed that. Really yeah. enjoyed that. Um, 
um, it was a book I forced on everybody. And it was this really cool, poised, kind of glassy and sharp look at New Zealand culture, I guess from an outsider's perspective. Yeah, because she is an American writer, isn't she? Is she is an American writer. And it reminded me a lot of Emily Perkins, early Emily Perkins and another expat New Zealand writer that I really like, Louise Warham Leonard. Um, And not long after that novel, I interviewed her for the New Zealand Listener, and um, you can actually read that online Mm -hmm. still, so we can put that link up. Um, But she told me she loved New Zealand, and she loves Janet Frame. Ah, yeah, cool. But um, I just, I'm going to talk about this book, but I wanted to read out one of the opening passages from Nobody Is Ever Missing, because it's just one that gets me every time. (laughs) Oh, Is that all right? I'm so ready. I'm so ready to be read to. <laughs> yeah, it's that time of the afternoon. <laughs> Story time. <laughs> Sit back with a cup of tea. Yeah. The second thing they tell you about hitchhiking is never accept invitations home for tea because tea really means dinner and dinner really means sex and (laughs) sex really means they're going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that line. It's really great. Um, She's a very contemporary writer and... um, so his second novel, The Answers, was this real... I think you would like that, Jenna. Yeah, um, I think I would too. It was a kind of really strange, satirical, dystopian novel, which was completely tangible and really inventive and clever. But this is a collection of 12 short stories about messed up families, breakups and breakdowns, grief, people who are lost and adrift. There's a murderous cat. Ooh. <laughs> And she's really good at writing about smart, aware people who are kind of adrift or kind of in a liminal state. Um, And I've actually really noticed there's been a resurgence of short stories lately. More people are asking for short stories, whereas previously they were quite a hard thing to push, but now people are really open to them. You get that, I don't read short stories. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't read short stories. But no, um, there's been a bit of a turnabout. But there's great stories in here. There's one called Please Take, and it's about a woman who throws out her dead husband's clothes, and then she spots a a man, a stranger in the park, wearing them. Amazing. I was thinking of Marie Kondo in the. the (laughs) Um, There's another one called Violations about a man who obsessively reads his ex wife's writing to make sure that she hasn't written about him. Oh my gosh. Every writer's nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Family Physics is this really great story that really finally zeroes in on this middle class family who are completely exasperated by their radical daughter. It's really cynical, very funny. And she is so good at writing dialogue. I mean, it kind of serves as this really kind of sharp cutting kind of commentary. And I think her stories take really strange directions and she's kind of an odd all-rounder, I think, because she can create extremely multifaceted characters, unique scenarios and write brilliant dialogue and is at once unnerving and darkly hilarious. Mm. I mean, she never drops the ball. She is so good. Oh, great. So good. Um, Really fresh, inventive, witty, funny, uncomfortable, weird, dark... And very knowing. And um, I think the way she's constructed these stories is just so superb. And Anne Enright, who is an author that I love, said of these stories, you don't have to read them, but you really should. Mm. And as always, I'm with Anne. (laughs) Nobody has ever missing really kind of felt autobiographical. Yeah, well, she did say that, I mean, a lot of it was kind of infused 
with people that she met on her travels because she basically hitchhiked around New Zealand mm, and went weirdos. <laughs> and kind of, yeah, did write about some of those people. But I guess everything she does, she kind of moves on mm. to something else. So she's probably not even that person anymore. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And even those little snippets of short stories you gave us, they felt like things that would definitely really happen. So tangible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so tangible, but really kind of unnerving and weird Mm. and they take really weird directions but I think a lot of people would um, connect with that reading through your ex's writing to see if you can find traces of Oh, totally I'm just thinking of some recent New Zealand books (laughs) where it's like I'm sure people have been combing through is that me is that me (laughs) because we're all so self-obsessed yeah (laughs) yeah don't date writers yeah that's the takeaway (laughs) or musicians or musicians Um, thinking about that, musicians. Or songwriters, yeah. I just finished reading, I'll talk about it later, but um, Shane Carter from <laughs> Dimmer and Straight Jacket Fits has a, a new um, autobiography called Dead People I Have Known. And there's one really great bit in it. I wish I could remember it properly, but he is talking about the Dunedin musician, Matt Middleton, and how he interviewed him once for something, and he said, oh, you know, can you... Is, is a song a good thing for revenge on someone? <laughs> and Matt Middleton says, you can't stab someone with a song. <laughs> <laughs> Cracked me up. You can stab them emotionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stab them in the feelings. Yeah. So that was my book review. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. I am looking forward to snaffling that book off you. Yeah, yeah that looks great. That, when did that come out? The end of last year? Uh, kind of, yeah, towards the end of last mm. year. Yeah, cool. All right. Who's next? I can go. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I have to read off my phone. Bad oh, admin call because I forgot you. to print out my. I do my that every notes. time. Um, so, I'm reviewing the library book by Susan Orlean, Ooh. and this is um, a memoir, true crime sort of ode to libraries. And Susan, so Susan Orlean had just moved to LA and was researching the Central Library. And when a staff member mentioned this book she was holding would probably still smell of smoke. And she was like, mm. what do you mean? And he's like, the big fire in the <laughs> ni- 1986. So she gets so intrigued <laughs> by this. And um, there's, there was this huge fire that destroyed 400,000 books. And um, so she delves into the life of the suspected arsonist, a man called William Dean. But it's of course it's one of those books that's just it's not just about the fire. It's a warm dedication to libraries and the history of book burning and censorship, mm. the history of the lib- the library in LA and all the, the places it's moved to and how it's changed and who's run it. And you know, the way the library's involved from evolved from an exclusive and expensive membership club that you it was really hard to be a part of and women and children weren't allowed to this community haven where you have outreach programs for the homeless and you know book buses but they have a nurse on them going out to areas so they can check on people's health and the amazing things that they they do so um Orlean's characterization is just so amazing and we're whether a character is described through intensive research, her shadowing someone, or even sitting through one-hour-long phone conversations on why the subject won't be interviewed, she captures each with this visceral essence that's charming and often quite humorous. Mm. Um, I just wanted to share a story about a me- very memorable character yeah. in the book. Um, 
this guy called Charles Lummis who ran he was the so the the city librarian is appointed by the mayor and they run the library and he was the city librarian he became the city librarian in bad circumstances a woman was fired because she was a woman and when he got the job he walked from Ohio to California to to take the job how long did that take him um we while, <laughs> um, and he wrote a book on the way. Um, oh, as he did, yeah. <laughs> and so this is very early nine, uh, early twentieth century. He was disillusioned with the growing popularity of pseudoscience books, but instead of removing them, he established the Literary Pure Food Act to warn readers against them. So he had a blacksmith make a branding iron with the poison symbol, and he would brand them on the inside of the cover. And he wanted to put a note saying, this book is of the worst class that we can possibly keep at the library. We are sorry that you have not had any better sense than to read it. However, (laughs) they ended up making a bookmark card that said, for flatter and more scientific treatment of the subject, consult, and the other librarians would write different alternatives. And I was just thinking of, you know bookstores and libraries and spaces perhaps rather than taking books off the shelf that there's like suggesting alternatives and yes. it was it felt quite poignant to yes. read that in the last in the last week and um, so I just find this book so evocative and wow. I can really just describe it as so joyful it's wow. such a warm book and I just love it oh she is so cool like she's um a long-form non-fiction writer for the new yorker yeah and i read her book the orchid thief oh yeah i want to read years ago that's that's her most famous one and i feel like i feel like they're kind of similar like she's got this amazing niche of writing about these really specific things but kind of free-ranging out Mm. You know, like she wrote that book about Rin Tin Tin as yeah. well. Sort of emotional touchstones that get people going, you yeah, know, yeah. you know, dogs and books. And, and libraries are such an emo- emotional Absolutely. touchstone for people. You will always, I think most people have spent a, a, a bit of time, at least when you're a child. Um, and she's coming to the Writers' Festival. Ooh. So you can you can see her um, on the Sunday the 19th of May from 1 till 2 p.m. And she's with Simon Wilson. So we will be, be there. a great session. Yeah. yeah, I've just, I found it so hard to read in the last couple of weeks mm. because it's been quite a hard time emotionally. I've just been mm. like on the internet. Mm. And I've managed to read this book about an anxious woman doing um, non things that she wouldn't usually do. And then I've just sat in this and it's just felt so nice and just what I need. That sounds like a balm. Yeah. It's like a warm bath. Mm. Yeah. So that's my review. Oh, Thank thanks, you. Jenna. That's great. Can't wait to read it. Yeah, I think you'll really like it. Yeah. Are we doing it for our book club? We are doing it for our oh, book club. I this is the book club that I'm not <laughs> in, the one that uh, yeah. Jenna and Louise are in no without me. allowed. <laughs> <laughs> I love how I always get to bring that up. <laughs> I brought it up on purpose. <laughs> so, yeah, Louisa, you'll need to read it by mid-April. Okay, all right. On to it. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I have nothing else to do. <laughs> um, all right, so I guess it's time for my review. You're up. Okay, so... Um, this review is very personal, um, and I should probably kind of do a little bit of a disclaimer up top. That um, so the book that I'm going to review today it's a poetry book. It's out this month from AUP Auckland University Press. It's called Under Glass, and it's a collection of poetry from Gregory Kahn. 
And, um, yeah, first of all, I will say that Gregory Khan is a really good friend of mine. We met at university at a creative writing course, um, and I immediately knew that, A, Greg had talent, (laughs) and, B, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I latched onto him, and we've been friends ever since. (laughs) He thanks you in this book. Well, that's the second part of my disclaimer is that, um, you know, during that time, I discovered a passion for helping other people's superior work, um, you know, be the best that it can be. So um, that sort of, during that time, that's sort of when I think Greg became a poet and I became the editor that I was one day mm-hmm. going to be. So um, I actually edited this pe- this book when I was working at AUP special. last year. Um, so, yeah, that was a really special moment, being able to edit this book. Um, have to say, I didn't do that much to it because Greg is a very extraordinary writer and, you know, obviously I am biased, but I think that objectively he's a really incredible poetry yeah. writer. He mm-hmm. was shortlisted um, for the Occam's last year. Um, last year? Year before, sorry. Year before. Yeah. Pa- yeah. Paper Boat? Yeah, This Paper Boat this was paper his boat. previous book, and um, that was also released through AUP. And the two books, are they're not in a series at all, but they are very closely interlinked. Um, even the covers um, speak to each other. They have a similar colour scheme. They were both designed by um, really talented cover designer, um, Greg Simpson. Greg Simpson. He is my favourite cover designer. Eh? Yeah, he is my favourite. You can always spot them a mile away. He's a very literary designer, and yeah. he, you know, he reads the book and then he and then he designs the cover. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, this. So, Greg, Greg's first book, this paper boat, was an extremely personal um, sort of combination of family memoir and and sort of. Um, also Greg's experiences in the Singapore army. Um, So that was quite a confessional account and it was quite a straightforward sort of book of poems in that way, like you could sort of follow follow a narrative within each poem. This is quite an unusual book, Under Glass. It's it's, sort of veered off into a slightly more theoretical vein. Greg is a poet who's really concerned with ideas of sort of codes and networks. He's mm. got a really um, a really serious grounding in philosophy, um, logic. Um, he does coding as his day job. He's, um, yeah, so he's very theoretic- theoretically grounded. So that's a really rich vein for people who are interested in that. Personally, I don't really give a shit about any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I really... The poems themselves, they stand on their own. And regardless of whether you habitually read poetry or not, whether you find poetry a bit scary, I just, I really do encourage people to dive in to any poetry book, but especially this one. Um, <laughs> it's it's just, um, so to describe it, it's pretty indescribable, but there are sort of two strands running through the book. One of them is sort of a prose narrative that actually samples quite a lot from um, the sci-fi trilogy um, by Jeff Vandermeer. Um, the first book was called Annihilation. Oh, is Sorry. that not uh, the Jeff Vandermeer thing? Yes. Oh, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, <laughs> didn't I say that? Oh, I didn't actually know what word you said. Like, oh, I just didn't. I've got a bit of a cold, that. so yeah. sorry if I'm kind of snuffling yeah. and talking a bit <laughs> indistinctly. <laughs> it just sounded you. like one word. I'm oh, sorry. Anyway, 
Anyway, um, yeah, so that you've got that kind of prose narrative of this lone sort of narrator wandering through the wilderness, entering an abandoned lighthouse, um, and kind of entering this network of caves. And then the other strand that's going through the book is are these kind of more uh, traditional sort of lyric poems, um, very emotional, often addressing um, someone in the second person, so, you know, talking mm. to um, an invisible interculator. Oh, I don't know how to say that word. Talking to someone, mm-hmm. and, and you're not quite sure who it is, but mm-hmm. they're very sort of universal concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It's it's a very it's quite an unusual book, you know. The poems don't have titles, so there's been a few of Greg's poems that have been excerpted in various places online. They don't they never have titles, so mm. it's sort of like here is a poem, <laughs> <laughs> untitled number thirty one <laughs> from Gregory Khan's new collection. But I yeah I really recommend it. It's it's really beautiful and it's also quite sad, mm. um, you know. Greg is, he's quite an emotional writer that, and again, there's that sort of double strand of, you know, very theoretical um, and then also very emotional and very sort of immersive and quite visual at times. Yeah, so I really, I really do recommend that. And I also have a little little extra recommendation that I might slide in Mm. for people who are scared of poetry. Um, I just read a book of lectures by the poet do you guys know how to say this name? Ruffel. Ruffel by Mary Ruffel. It's called Madness, Rack and Honey. So Mary Ruffel is a poet and these are short lectures. Quite a lot of them are about poetry mm-hmm. and they are extremely accessible, quite funny. And they're a good thing to read before reading a book of poems mm. if you're feeling a little bit trepidatious, mm-hmm. you know, if you're just dipping a toe into poetry. Maybe read Madness, Rack and Honey first and she'll make you feel all calm, and she'll make you just, you know, feel brave. And poetry's for everyone, you know. Mm. It's not just for people who know the secret, because there is no secret. Mm. It's just about reading it mm. and it's interesting getting what you get from it. that you say that, because Greg Kahn kind of makes me feel like he demystifies poetry and makes it democratic. I mean, you know how he has that text manipulator app? Yes, that, thank and you for reminding like, um, me. I wanted to talk about like that. anyone... Anyone can be a poet or anyone totally. can write poetry. It's... So just to expand on your point, yeah, so Gregory Khan has a website. We will link to it. It's mm. called Glass Leaves and it's a text manipulator and you can you can grab, a, you can put in a sample of text from anywhere, your text, anyone else's text. You put it in this box and then there are all these kinds of functions that you can run that will tell you, uh, you know, you can take out all the verbs, you can scramble the words around, um, and it's really, really fun. I was mm. doing it yesterday with just some article that I was reading. It's just like, and you can generate essentially a poem by doing this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I just think you're absolutely right, Karen. He's a poet of the people. <laughs> it is like reading a poem can be like looking at an artwork, right? It's mm. just like you take in, you take out what you want to, and there can be layered meanings or whatever. But sometimes just the surface is all you need to really enjoy it, and that doesn't matter. I think that there are probably people in the world who argue for surface readings. You know, mm-hmm. that's the thing. And that's that's so often when people are put off by a certain art form, whether it be music, art, literature, you know, just your your subjective experience is really what counts when you're mm. encountering a work of art. I mean, that's my perspective on it. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Subjective. Totally subjective. Objectively subjective. <laughs> <laughs> 
moving so, along. Thank you for the great reviews, yeah, ladies. Yeah, cool. It's really uh, good. I'm just glad I didn't cry because it <laughs> means a lot to me. Well, Aww. you must be so happy it's out now. I'm so happy it's out. I'm so proud. I wish I could have been at the launch. Um, looked like a lovely was, launch. It looked like an incredible launch. Really busy. Yeah, down in... Um, in Unity in yeah. Wellington, yeah. I love listening to Greg read his poetry as well. It's really a treat. Okay, so moving <laughs> along to the next slot, we have a juicy who the fuck is today. Oh, um, yeah. I feel like we've had a bit of a theme of grifters and we've got um, a really good grifter today, Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth who the fuck Holmes. is she? Yeah. <laughs> she was called the youngest self-made billionaire of all time, and she came up with this so-called revolutionary way that could run hundreds of tests on blood. It was quick, painless, and affordable, and they called it the iPod of healthcare. Uh, it sounded too good to be true, and it was. Fill us in, Jenna. <laughs> I'm the one who's read the book. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the book is called... Bad Blood by John Carey Rue, and this is really the book that started it all this the the this whole um venture that she that she started went on for about 10 years and mm. i think they had about 9 billion dollars worth of investor funding she is she's quite an unusual woman in the way that she kind of had this image makeover when it seemed like she was getting a lot of press for her work and she started wearing a black turtleneck <laughs> like Steve Jobs like Steve Jobs and also she there's a lot of discussion and, and it's come out there's even more about it this week with the documentary coming out is like whether her her voice was um, fake so have you guys actually seen the YouTube clip of her where she slips into yes. her real no, voice no yeah. no I haven't she um, just sounds cause normal that, yeah. that voice she uses does not sound like yeah, a real voice. It's an artificially deep voice, and it sounds kind of like a an like a California surfer dude, kind of masculine, kind of like hey, authority, I'm you know, like yeah, not feminized. But obvi- oh, obviously, mm-hmm. whatever she was doing, kind kind of worked. Like mm-hmm. she got so much, um, so many people on board. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, none of them were actually blood scientists so the, all of these people were latched on she treated her staff terribly mm. she had a very bizarre relationship with um a man who became like her second in charge who also treated oh, the staff sunny. terribly sunny yeah and john carrie Rue's book so what happened was she started getting all of this press and this this machine was in production but it wasn't actually doing what they said it was doing and a few people started reading articles about her who knew about blood science and and what's that phlebotomy? called yeah phlebotomy there's a phlebotomist on the bachelor this season it was the first time i'd heard that word and um then they were like, this is not possible. So there was a blogger who alerted this Wall Street journalist. It was a pathologist. Yeah. Wasn't it? Or um, a, it was a pathologist who read the New Yorker article and then he alerted the Wall Street journalist. And there's a blogger? Or oh, there's a blogger involved. Yeah. Anyway, I can't remember his name. And the, <laughs> the blogger alerted John Carreyrou and then, then he started it. Um, investigating it really heavily. So if you were to read the book Bad Blood, I would say it's like super deep, really detailed. It's like proper investigative journalism. Mm. It, you know, dots all the I's and crosses all the T's. They like made sure they weren't being sued along the whole way. And maybe for the first 
a first little bit, you're like, who are all these people? Why do I have to read about them? But then it mm. really, really comes mm. together and it reads like a really great crime thriller or a corporate thriller, mm-hmm. and but it's all true. And then you can Google it all afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's been a podcast called The Dropout, which I started listening to, but then I just read the book. So I was like, I actually have just yeah. read the story. Mm. And then there's the documentary, the which HBO I'm keen to documentary, watch. Which yeah. I actually watched half of it Did last you? night. Yeah, it was on YouTube. I don't know if it's still there, but, you Ooh. know, run, don't walk. <laughs> 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 and I found it accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, better do some research. Um and, yeah, the reason I actually stopped watching it was because it was quite gruesome. Mm. Like the actual description of the machine which she created, what was it called? Einstein? The Emerson. Oh, the Emerson. I thought it was Edison. 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 Einstein. <laughs> Edison. <laughs> Same dish. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sure. Um, yeah, so the Edison machine that she created, it's like a, it's like a miniaturised version of a, a full lab, um, which kind of – does seem unlikely to work, but what would I know? I'm not a phlebotomist. <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, they were describing the fact that, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, liquid, a.k.a. blood, in the machine, and it, um, yeah, it got gunky, let's just say, and I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, and I'm not very squeamish usually, but even I was like, that is really gross. And so, of course, people were getting um, false um, positives for mm. diseases they didn't have because there was a lot of cross-contamination. Mm. Um, okay, now I'll leave it there. Because I yeah. read about an engineer who had worked on Edison. Is it Edison? Yeah. Trying to the improve Einstein. it. The Einstein. <laughs> the Einstein. And he, he said it was like trying to build a bus while people were still on the bus. Someone's going to get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but John Carreyrou is amazing. He's won the Pulitzer Prize twice for his investigative journalism. So, yeah. I trust anything Tr- he says. Yeah, I yeah, really yeah. trust anything he says. Yeah. And it was just kind of the similar way of the fire Festival is that people, if anyone came to her with problems, she'd just fire them. And then you just have these poor people that are holding on to their jobs because they might have mortgages or families or they have to do whatever they have to do to get their money. Just like making it work no matter what but Mm. there is a really bad operation and I just cannot believe like this kind of blows my mind the big time investors that were involved (gasps) with this Bill Clinton Rupert Murdoch 125 Mm. million from him and also Henry Kissinger Mm -hmm. and Errol Morris Mm. did the advertising for her. Yeah. And what what has he lost the plot? And I mean, who was there? Um, because when she finally got things started going bad, her lawyer was like a really massive lawyer that he was just like believed everything she said. They all believed everything she said. And you have to wonder, is it down <laughs> to her personal magnetism? Um, I mean, they talk a lot in the documentary about how she had this really direct gaze that she mm. would turn up. She would look you straight in the eye and she wouldn't blink. And those are actually two very basic tenets of essentially business psychology. Mm. Yeah. You know, people say if you want to be, if you want to make friends and influence people, um, then you look people in the eye and you don't blink too much. And so I think Elizabeth Holmes has taken those two tenets and really run mm. with them and built an empire on them, mm. you know, along with sort of this kind of charm that everyone describes yeah. that she could sort of turn on like a faucet. I mean, she it does seem like she did not give a shit, would do whatever it took, 
you know, whoever got in the way, they were just, they were fired, they were silenced, mm-hmm. they were sued. Mm-hmm. Um, One of their long-standing staff members committed suicide. Mm-hmm. It's just, it got really, really bad. So it's very much a kind of Icarus flying too close to the sun cautionary tale of, you know, just make sure that when you, um, you know, when you go public with something, have the product Mm. Have mm. a product. Yeah, <laughs> like, that thing works. That gets me too is that the o- she sort of you know was defending herself, and the only time she actually shut up was when she was arrested for fraud. Yeah, <laughs> so like to the bitter end, and then you know that pathologist was saying this has all the hallmarks of a world class scam artist. Yeah, and you know people can believe that this had not been peer reviewed. Um, it's just crazy. I haven't read the book, but I did read an amazing um, long-form LRB, London Review of Books, piece about it. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which, yeah. Um, we can oh, I think up. I read that too, actually. Yeah, um, yeah the, it's a great read. It was. It, I really enjoyed it. I mean, this wild scammers are just endlessly fascinating, I know. aren't they? And it was just all of that at the same time. We have Fire Festival and Old Mate, who we talked about last time, um, mm. Dan Mallory. They were <laughs> all coming out at the same time. But, you know, I feel a little bit sad because Elizabeth Holmes was seen as this, she was the first female Mm. CEO and she let down the ladies for sure. Let us down. Yeah. (laughs) By the way, I just want to state for the record that my voice is quite low today, but that's because I've got a cold. (laughs) (laughs) Hers is really low. But yeah, yeah. Hers is like with that, almost like that joke voice you put on when you um, call someone on a prank phone call. Uh, hello. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for Anita. Can I order 10? Is your please? refrigerator running? <laughs> you better go catch it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we should do a prank call special, guys. Yeah. We're, We're good. good. We've, We've got, got them. To catch <laughs> okay. Where were we? Um, I've completely lost the plot. So we've all finished our reviews. We've done Who the Fuck Is. So now next. we're on to. Not books. Not books. Not Ooh. books. Who would like to go first? Um, I'll go first because mine's just a little, a little one. It's uh-huh. not, it's not super involved. Um, but basically, um, I've been using this app called Headspace, which you've probably heard of, especially mm. if you listen to overseas podcasts, because a lot of them seem to be sponsored by yeah, Headspace. That's true. So maybe I should have saved this <laughs> until true. they offered to sponsor us. But yeah. anyway, it's a. Um, I was a bit confused about what it was, because uh, um, but yeah, it's a meditation app essentially, mm. and um, you can download it for free. And the f- the kind of introductory sessions are also free, and then I think you can purchase courses. So I'm only halfway through the introductory course, but mm. you know, why not talk about it now? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so basically, what it is is you um, there'll be like a short video at the start, and it'll just it's just kind of like a cartoon character which is you know it's all beautifully designed and and not irritating really um or as unirritating as a meditation app can possibly be i have a really low tolerance for (laughs) everything basically and (laughs) and um you know you've got a guy with a sort of pleasant kind of southern english accent you know just telling telling you to relax and not to worry if you kind of forget to relax and, you know, focus on your breathing, blah, blah, blah. You can choose between three, five, and ten minutes for each session. And I've been doing them on the bus, mm. which people seem to be a bit shook by. But at I have the quite beginning a long, of the day or at the end of the day? Wherever I can fit it in. Yeah, right. And it's just nice to have something that you can do on the go. And, you know, it's nice to have someone on your headphones being like, you know, 
oh, just like think about your breathing. But if you forget to do that and start looking out the window, that's also fine. So I just really recommend that if you're feeling a little bit, you know, tired and wired, if you've got a lot going on, if you don't have time to actually attend a mindfulness course or you don't have the money to do that, this is quite a cost effective, like the courses themselves are not expensive. Um, It's quite a cost effective and reasonably accessible way for people to access, you know, mindfulness resources. Mm. Um, Can you choose your voice? I haven't tried. I wonder if they've got Elizabeth Holmes on there. <laughs> <laughs> or a soothing lady. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of nice to hear a man's voice for a change because usually, like, with most apps, it's a woman's voice, yeah. which yeah, is true. always a bit politically charged in its way. Sounds yeah. like it's something we could maybe all benefit from giving yeah. a go. Yeah, yeah, especially if they sponsor our pod. Mm, yeah. Good. <laughs> Hit us up, I know you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> they hear everything. All right, that's my that's my not book. Slow, that's great. Um, like you said, just review Project Runway season seventeen. <laughs> the but, moment we've all been waiting yeah. for. <laughs> What's but, going on with Project Runway? But it's different. So Heidi Klum and Tim Gunn left after <gasps> season sixteen. Oh. So I was ready to just like, I just kind of like took it off my list of things that I would watch. Yeah, in they the were always the main draw card. Really. Yeah, they're such an iconic duo. And um, a few things happened. The ba- I've been editing a lot of wedding photos at the moment, so I watch reality TV while I do that. And The Bachelor ended, so I was like, what the fuck am I going to watch? And there was this funny meme kind of video of Ivanka Trump filming herself watching Project Runway, going, oh my God, it's just really <laughs> weird. It's just that. the most bizarre saw thing. That. You saw it? Well, actually, I saw it on Tavi Gibbonson's Oh, that's Instagram. how I saw it, yeah. And she's, so I was like, oh my God, Project Runway's back. And it's because Carly Kloss is the new host and she is married to Jared Kushner's Kushner's. brother, which is a little bit like, but you Mm -hmm. can't choose what family you marry into, I guess, if it's it's real love. Who knows? And so she and Ivanka are sisters-in-law. Sister-in-law. She's 26. Who is? Carly Kloss. That's what it said on Wikipedia. But that's really young because she's been a Victoria's Secret model for for ages. Anyway, so she's the host. <laughs> and then we've got, um, I don't know if you guys remember Christian Siriano. He won Project Runway in 2008. He was the youngest ever winner. Oh, I do remember him because he he tends to dress um, plus-size women on the red carpet. Mm-hmm. He's one of the few designers that actually and do he, that. His most latest iconic look was Billy Porter's dress tuxedo look on mm. the, at the Oscars. And that was amazing. So incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So he's the new mentor. Oh, and that's cool. so it's moved from, it used to be on Bravo, moved, went to Lifetime, now it's gone back to Bravo, and it's kind of the same, but kind of new. It's like the hip millennial young sibling version, but it still has all the the great, the great stuff of it, and the, they've just got still got Nina Garcia, but then they've got two new judges who are like super cool, really interesting. I just love Project Runway. I feel like it's a reality show that has always celebrated the immigrant story. They've mm. always celebrated um, diversity, sexual and sexuality, and um, and the you know different ages and different um, class, and you know like. The people just aren't all the same and they bring something really different to the table. But you still have the person with the great ideas who can't sew and then the person who can sew who has no taste and all of that stuff going <laughs> on. So um, I was really dubious about it, but I love it. And it's really, really good. And Christian Seriano is a great mentor. He's way more like 
where Tim Gunn would be like, are you sure you want to use that fabric? Um, Christian Sierra would be like, I hate that fabric. <laughs> so it's like Good. way more upfront. So it's, I'm into it. Good reality TV show. Oh, maybe it's time for me to get back into Project Runway. Get back in it. Yeah. Although, quick shout out. The new season of Drag Race is also really incredible. I feel like it's got a, you know, if you like Drag Race, you you like um, Project Runway, right? Like yeah. you've kind of got that similar similar vibe and that really celebratory vibe. It, there is mm. a little bit of bitchiness, but it doesn't really dwell on it. It's a little more woke than your average reality TV yes. show, which is obvious, honestly not saying much, but yeah. <laughs> we take what we can get. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jenna. Thanks, Jenna. Yeah. That was really good. <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> It was nuanced. It was nuanced. Yeah. <laughs> Almost made me want to watch it. Oh, good. <laughs> I've got something completely different. <laughs> yeah, it'll, let's actually, like, sober up. Yeah. Because yeah, this is going to be it's a very sobering. It's a very sobering and emotional thing. Um, so why am I laughing? Um, <laughs> so... Pull it together, Karen. I'm <laughs> feeling very emotional. So a Monday night word came through that the experimental pop icon Scott Walker died. And for me, this is bigger than David Bowie. I think um, David Bowie probably wanted to be Scott Walker. Mm. Um, Scott Walker totally out Berlin, David Bowie and Iggy Pop. And Bowie covered um, Scott Walker's songs and... Um, so anyway, Scott Walker, who was he? He started out as um, in a boy group, a pop group in the 60s called the Walker Brothers. And they weren't actually brothers. <laughs> of course not. In the time-honored tradition. I know. Um, but he was just really iconic and enigmatic and just has this amazing kind of baritone voice. So he started out as this sort of teen pop idol in um, the boy group. First boy group, well, one of them, you know, the Walker Brothers. So what sort of era was that? So this, that was 1960s, and they did really lush, kind of wide screen, bombastic, melancholy kind of um, angsty pop songs. Your mum would have listened to them. Um, and then he kind of veered off and explored really interesting musical terrains and he recorded a quartet of albums, Scott, Scott 2, Scott 3 <laughs> and Scott 4. Oh, God, I love it. <laughs> and, you know, if you ever want to know an album for me that is pitch perfect from start to finish that I will listen to for hours and days and weeks and months on end, it's Scott 4. Mm. It is just... Amazing from start to finish and um, really, really important to me. And anyway, so when he passed away, my timelines on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook were just completely filled with Scott Walker. So I've got the right friends, you know, and it felt like people were kind of reaching out. But I feel like he was just one of the most singular and amazing unique artists that we've ever been lucky enough to listen to. And I remember once um, a dude put a song on a mixtape for me mm. and it was Make It Easy On Yourself by the Walker Brothers and I actually didn't oh. really like the dude <laughs> but I loved Scott Walker. <laughs> he was just such a visionary and um, a really important and vital artist. And, and, you know, like someone was saying to me today that you know, he was 76 and he died, but it felt like he had another kind of 
project in him, but really he'd already had kind of three careers in his lifetime. He was, you know, a, a pop pin-up idol and then a kind of crooner. He did sort of weird avant-garde crooner kind of pop songs. And then he kind of went off and did um, quite experimental avant-garde music and I think there aren't many artists that can stay vital right to the end and still do interesting things. Like usually artists make really bad choices in who they collaborate yeah, with. Yeah. But he collaborated with Sun and um, a whole host of really interesting people. And his lyrics were um, really quite crack up as well. He's got a song called Hero of the War and it's about a guy who can't shake hands or move his feet. He's a he's a war veteran. Um not to oh. trivialise. <laughs> <It's hilarious>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's terrible, but, you know, just the absurd. Um, so Scott Walker was a really big artist for me. Paul Karen came into work so upset. And I was just like, I thought he was already dead. <laughs> you callous bitch. But I know. I know one song by him because I was a big Wes Anderson soundtrack fan oh, yeah, back totally. in my day and yeah. he was on the Steve um Oh, I was going to say two songs. <laughs> um, the Life Aquatic soundtrack. The Life Aquatic. What, what, what song was it? Um, 30th Century Man? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. Right at the end. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that was beautiful. Oh, yeah. So actually, when I saw it that he came and um, he died on Monday night and I thought, oh, I thought he had already died. I put on that song and listened to it and thought of him, even Aww. though I didn't really know who See, he was. <laughs> we were all doing it in real time yeah. together. Um, my friend Duncan and Wellington. And he sent me a text, you know, we only ever kind of text each other when someone that we love has died. Um, it's just reaching out, you know, these artists that we care about and love so much. And people say, oh, you know, why do you care about this person? It was a pop star, but music, you know, if you love music, it means so much to you. Um, yeah. Oh, R.A.P. Scott Walker. So go and listen to Scott Four. Okay. Will do. <laughs> I'll put it on my Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else? No, I think that's it. That's us. Well, thank you for tuning in, everybody. And thank you to Tina, as always, and the Matatui Foundation for your support. And thanks to Anne O'Brien for coming in to speak to us. What a treat having Anne here. She was a good sport. We're all revved up for the Auckland Writers Festival now. Um, head to the Spin Off Books page, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And you can email us, you can always email us. KPCutsPod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Thanks, guys, and we'll see you in April. Kakite. Kakite. Bye. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.